We're in Daniel chapter 7, and I'm going to pick up reading where what Daniel saw. Just read through verses 1 through 14, and then pick up in our study. Here's what Daniel wrote down for us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on its two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And after this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, the books were opened, and I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, this is where we've covered thus far. We have gone through this account, and we have seen these glorious introduction into Daniel's great vision. We now come to the interpretation from verse 15 into the end of the chapter, and we will look at the 
divine interpretation given tonight. But what we have seen, and last week we particularly saw the three main characters. We saw the four beasts already, looking at four distinct kingdoms, and we'll see more again tonight, particularly the last king and kingdom. But we also saw three main characters, particularly last night, the Ancient of Days, referring to God the Father, the little horn making great boasts. This is in reference to the last Gentile king, the last great Gentile ruler, and one which we will see more tonight about, and then one like a son of man. This is Jesus Christ himself, the son of man, the Messiah, the one who is going to come and set up his kingdom. These were the three main characters which are coming out particularly in this prophecy before us. Now, Daniel is going to turn and give us the interpretation of this particular prophecy. And so we'll just walk through tonight and read a few verses and make observations about the interpretation and then wrap it up for this chapter. Here's what Daniel continues on. Here's the interpretation of the great dream. Notice verse 15 and 16 there. As for me... Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Here as Daniel sees all of these visions and and interacts with these various beasts as they come out, and he is trying to give a description. And I think it is very natural, exactly as he would say there in verse 15, my spirit was distressed within me, overwhelmed by what he was seeing, and these details unfolded, and he asked one around him what it was. Likely this one around would be an angel. Later on in Daniel's prophecies, angels will come and give an account to Daniel. Gabriel is sent particularly to Daniel to give explanation to Daniel about the visions that he sees. So it's very likely that this was an angelic being who is there in this vision that Daniel reaches out to and says, please explain to me what I just saw. Notice again then verse 17, the beginning of the explanation, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So this settles exactly what the intention of the beasts were. These are descriptions of four great kings and their kingdoms particularly. So he describes there these four kings goes back and also described in chapter 2, so it shows the parallel back to chapter 2 with the four great kingdoms that were to come. Here are four great kings who are going to come out. And as this chapter unfolds, we're going to see that. Notice down in verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, clearly here, the angelic being takes Daniel further than anything they had seen up to this point. Here, and I love this statement, is this as if the, just dropped right in here. Yeah, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. 
doesn't explain in the context where these ones come from. It doesn't drop them in there. Here the angel just kind of drops in another detail to Daniel to explain. Who are these saints? Where did they come from? What is going on? Which saints should we identify here? Do we identify Old Testament saints as any Old Testament believer? Is that what is happening here? Because Old Testament believers were recognized as saints. Even New Testament believers were recognized as saints. Old Testament believers were saved in the same way New Testament believers were saved in by faith in the Messiah. The Old Testament believer anticipating the Messiah to come. The New Testament believer looking back on Jesus' arrival and death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible constantly speaks of the believer in the church age as the saint. Paul in Romans 1, 7 says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Over and over again throughout the New Testament, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. New Testament believers are regularly called out as saints, but I don't think either of the group here. He's not referring to New Testament believers, nor is he referring to the Old Testament saints at all. I think what he's referring to here are the 144,000, to the Jews who were saved in this time, to those who repent, turn to God, and follow God. How do I know that? Well, just notice some of the details here in our context. Jump down to verse 21. These saints are referred to again. It says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and had overpowered them. Who, the, who are these saints? These saints are ones where the little horn is going to go to war against them. Jump down to verse 22. You see them again there. This happens until the Ancient of Days comes and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Who are these saints? They are going to be protected by the Ancient One, the Ancient of Days, and they are going to take possession of the kingdom. Jump down to verse 25. You see them again in 25. And he will speak out against the Most High. So this is speaking of that, that little horn, that final king. He's going to speak out against the Most High. And he's going to wear down the saints of the highest one. And he goes on to explain what he'll do. But his aim is against the saints, against God's people. He is going to war against them. One more time, in verse 27, these saints are brought out again. It says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Who are these saints then? Well, we can rule, we can narrow them down. 
First of all, they're a group of people alive at the time in which this final king arises, this final Gentile king. Second of all, they're the object of wrath for that final king. Third of all, they are protected by God himself. And fourthly, they're going to receive the kingdom. They're going to be partakers of it. Certainly, believers, New Testament believers in Christ will be partakers of it, but that's not us in this text. Certainly, Old Testament saints are going to be part of it, but that, they're not in this text. This text is for those alive during this particular time. And I do believe we referenced it would be from the book of Revelation, those 144,000 witnesses. But that's for the study in Revelation. For us right now, it's just identifying God has a particular plan for this group of saints who are going to be God's people, who are going to stand firm against this final Gentile ruler, and this final Gentile ruler is going to be up in arms against them. They're going to be hostile to him. Or they're going to, he's going to be hostile to them, this final ruler. This final ruler again, who is going to fight against these saints. These are the saints, again, who have placed their faith in God. God is protecting them, preserving them. And while these, uh, this final ruler is trying to wage war against them, again, as verse 21 says, he is trying to war against them, to wipe them out and remove them all together. This final ruler wants total allegiance. He wants total domination. He wants to be ruling all. We're going to see him later in chapter 9, when in chapter 9 he is described as one who sets up a covenant, a covenant of peace, only to break it at the halfway point. He is the one who, again, who will persecute the saints. This is this one brought out here. What's important for us to see is this. The saints of the Most High are devotees to God. They are alive at the time of the, all these events unfold. They are devoted to God. They will not yield or submit to this final Gentile king. Now notice verse 19, Daniel's concern. And he brings out from verse 19 through verse 22, this is what Daniel articulates his burden says, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than, it, than its associates. And I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom." So Daniel says, this is why I just want to understand what's going on here. The three, three questions that Daniel is asking here, what is this final beast? What is the reference of the ten horns and their relationship to the smaller horn that grew up and became bigger? 
And what's the final result? These are the three questions that Daniel wants clarification to in this vision. I'm glad he asked those questions because those would be the ones that I'd be wondering about as well in the midst of this. What are the, what's the answer to these three great questions? And that's what we see unfolded in the rest of the verses here. The answer to these three questions. The first question again, what was this final beast? And again, the answer is coming from this angelic source who is explaining to Daniel the meaning and interpretation of the details. Notice verse 23. Thus he said, and this is the answer to question one, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now, there are particular details here about this kingdom that we must grasp. This is, a, again, this final beast is a description of this final kingdom. And this kingdom is going to be a world power. That's what it's described there. It's different than all the other kingdoms that came before it in its strength, but it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it, meaning it speaks to its total authority, its dominion over the whole earth. This is going to be a worldwide authority. It will own and rule over all. We saw this as we looked through the prophecies in Daniel chapter 2, we saw the various kingdoms, Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, kingdom of Greece, and then the kingdom of Rome. We saw the kingdom of Rome rule for about 1,500 years, demonstrating its, its dominance and its greatness over the other kingdoms. But that final kingdom didn't have all of the elements that are brought out here. That final kingdom, while it ruled for a long time, it hasn't completed all of the particular elements that have come out that this kingdom demonstrates. Not once did that first Roman Empire have ten kings at one time ruling in it. Not once did they have a final ruler that raised up and overthrew three of those kings. They haven't had an ultimate ruler take over from those previous ten kings, so we're still waiting for that time. That has not yet happened. This is why we anticipate, then, a revival of the Roman Empire. So you have one of two options. Either this is all allegory, it's all to be taken spiritualized, or there is a waiting for an actual revival of the Roman Empire. Which, by the way, this is still possible. There hasn't been another world power since the fall of Rome. Even now, there isn't one dominant world power. You have many world powers, plural, many different groups out there, different nations buying for which one of them is the greatest, but you don't have a dominant world power like Babylon, like Medo-Persia, like Greece, or like Rome. Even since that time, it's funny, and Hitler in Germany trying to take over when they did, tried to fill in that and take over world domination, but were unable to. There have been, and may even still be in the future, opportunities where groups try to do this, but ultimately we're waiting for this revival of a final authority, a final kingdom. We do believe because it was this fourth kingdom was related to Rome, it's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. 
And again, what's important to recognize in this empire, it has to be a world authority, a world ruler, because that's exactly what verse 23 says. They will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. It is going to have its reach over the entire world, still yet to come. And again, there's going to be a group of ten authorities. Now, how could it be of Rome? Well, back in chapter 2, I just showed you that geographically it could come from the European area. So it could be that it is located in the former footprint of Rome somewhere. It could be that each of those kings come from one of those locations. Or it could mean that the final headquarters is there in that Roman Empire. In some way, there is going to be a connection back to the former footprint of the Roman Empire, whether by each authority that is raised up or by its location of its headquarters, we don't know yet. One of those details is going to tie this together. It's interesting. I, I just kind of find curious historically looking at the picture. I was reading back through Preachers in the 60s and 70s, each coming through Daniel and looking at the situation and each viewing through their lens who's the, where's the final authority, who's the Antichrist, etc. And various explanations. So it is almost as if this, every generation looks at the prophecy through the details of their time period. So ultimately, all I can do is lay out and say, well, here's what must happen, and then what details today could fit if today was to happen. And I could say it like this, I don't know if today is the day, if the Lord's going to have it in this time period now, but I would say pieces are in place that it is very possible it could happen very soon. What must happen, there must be a final ruler, a final authority. There must be a world domination, meaning no more separation of nations, no more you know, China out there and Russia and the U.S. and other authorities all doing their own thing. No, there's going to be one unified force over the whole world. That must take place. And then on top of that, there must be then ten rulers in this particular kingdom for a period of time ruling and then one is going to raise up and create a division against three others that has to take place i don't think we're too far off it is rather interesting like i said used to be if you read back in the 1970s and 60s and the uh, fact even earlier to that if you went back to the reform period of time uh, in, back in the Reformation, you go back to the, uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. The London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, says that the Pope is the Antichrist. You know, yeah, so you've always had various people in their generation identifying who this Antichrist is, who the false prophet is, who the false, what the final false religion is. You go back into the 60s, you had the same thing. It's the Catholic Church. They're the ones who are going to be the final false religion, the final beasts, the, the ones who are going to, where the Antichrist is going to come. Or more recently, in the last even 10, 15 years, there have been others who have said, well, the Antichrist is not going to come from the Catholic Church. It's actually going to come from the Muslims. A man by the name of Joel Richardson has written a book on the coming 
um, Antichrist, the coming uh, Islamic Antichrist. And in this, he begins to seek to demonstrate how the Quran reports about their coming Messiah, the Mahdi. And if you read through the Quran and you looked at the Mahdi, the Mahdi is the same description in the Christian scriptures as the Antichrist. That the Mahdi was going to come in and this is the one they're lifting up, anticipating, expecting that he is going to come in and bring order. And that Jesus is going to be serving their Mahdi rather than the other way around. So it is interesting in the world around us, who knows the political climate that's going to unfold. But I do know this, that whatever unfolds, as we think, you know, we tend to think as Americans that this America is going to have a prominent spot Well, not so fast. No matter what it is, we won't have this independent authority that we think we have today because this is going to be a world power. And it certainly isn't as if the world needs our money any longer because that's quickly draining away. In fact, just this week, it was funny, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that oil companies in Saudi Arabia were reporting their profits for the third or fourth quarter and they had a surplus of $27 billion. You just keep doing that year over year, quarter over quarter, $30, $40, 50000000000 billion. Money quickly drains away as far as these, again, countries became, becoming more and more powerful, more and more enriched. Look at what's happened over the last few years with sports and other things where we have the World Cup right now. The whole world is watching Qatar as they look at the greatest sporting events. You have uh, Dubai taking a golf league and setting up their own golf league to get the attention of the business world. Even willing to throw out a popular uh, golf league, you know, the PGA, and start something on their own entirely in order to be the center of business focus. The Muslim world is gaining popularity, gaining influence, gaining prominence. So all this to say, it would be very easy for America to slip out of influence and for one of these other countries to rise up because of finances, because of influence, etc. Again, I personally wouldn't be surprised if somehow the U.S. was bamboozled into some kind of confederacy and then was one of those three rulers that was removed. But that's pure conjecture. The truth or the emphasis is this. There is going to be a major power, a world power, a world dominion that is going to rule. The second question that is brought up then is answered here. And that's answered in 24. Who is this ruler? Notice verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. There's going to be another ruler, a, a one who's going to come out of this. The ten kings are going to be set up. These ten rulers are going to be established. They're going to set up order. They're going to set up rule. They're going to establish the dominion. And then this other one is going to come. And again, I think this is, we're going to take this literally. 
that there's going to be an actual establishing of a kingdom, a worldwide kingdom with these ten heads, these ten rulers, ten authorities. And they're going to rule in such a way as to dominate the world map. And there's going to be a king. These are, again, ten kings. They're going to arise and they're going to rule this giant kingdom, this worldwide kingdom. And they're going to rule until a period of time where another comes and subdues three of the kings. Just like any particular uh, order of authority, there are those jockeying for positions to subdue other authorities so that they can become the most dominant authority. And that's exactly what comes out here. This one who's going to come down and, and conquer three, subdue three kings, and then begin to turn his attention against the Most High. We'll see that there in verse 25 in a moment. So there, there is this coming king. And again, this could be very easily established. Even now, it could happen simply with ten world powers getting together and sharing resources and ten world powers in a centralized bank deciding we're going to control all the monies and ten world powers deciding we're going to share our technology and we're going to share our weaponry and we're going to share our resources and we're going to work together and we're going to set law and we're going to dominate. Ten world powers coming together and deciding there's enough conflict in the world and enough division, enough separation that we need to bring unity. We need to bring trade unity. We need to bring unity to protect our peoples. And we have all the resources together. And if we share technology with one another, we can embrace this and we can have total world power. Be very easy to set up today. Very easy for the sharing of resources. I mean, after all, you just read through the news that people long to have the technology that the U.S. has, long to have the technologies to the stealth bombers, long to have the, the world resources, long to have the influence. And the more and more you start to look across the world and you see the ideology that comes in America and in other nations, you see the, the philosophical ideology of the world is becoming more and more unified the more the easier it is for all this to come together and then you add the wealth gap and that becomes more and more normalized it used to be i remember when i was in college heading overseas and we would uh, as a students in college we would hear of other students coming back from other nations and the the joy each summer was what could you get for a dollar in other countries And there were some fun toys and things given that you could get for a dollar in another nation. And we were surprised in one nation how far a dollar would go than another nation. And we would compare notes to see what areas we would want to head to to be able to see who can get the most for their dollar or five dollars. Well, not so anymore. When you travel now, everything is becoming much more uh, consistent across the board. The, the, the power of the dollar is running thinner throughout, and it's, it's pretty much consistently across. In fact, I remember heading down to uh, Argentina and heading into the local store there thinking, all right, I'm, you know, the dollar is certainly strong against the peso. Well, the reality is the peso has gone up. The number of pesos to get a plastic chair goes up, but the chair costs the same thing there as it does here. You're not getting any breaks, any deals. There's... Because 
from a kind of global parity in regards to finances. Not entirely there, but it's getting closer. Technology is getting closer. The ideological comparisons between nations are getting closer. Certainly when you have a worldwide pandemic and everybody starts closing down and you start responding in your nation because another nation closed their doors, you've got to do the same. Just shows how everything is connected. Trades are more and more connected. Trade routes are more and more connected. Flights are more and more connected. The world is quickly shrinking in regards to its connectivity. So something like this here in Daniel chapter 7 with 10 worldwide kings or 10 kings ruling over the whole world wouldn't be too far-fetched to see today. As I said, Joel Richardson in his book even describes the Muslims driving for world influence. And oh, by the way, they don't exactly look too bad. I mean, if you're paying attention to Qatar at all and looking to the moral influence of that nation. I mean, at the beginning of the World Cup, a lot of the world nations wanted to wear a rainbow armband so as to demonstrate their collective connection to uh, you know, homosexual rights. The authorities in Qatar said no, and that didn't happen. Top of that, the authorities in Qatar said, no, there's no drunkenness. We don't sell alcohol in public places. And so what they had initially got the rights to serve alcohol in the stadiums, the authorities said no and shut that down. Not too happy for Budweiser. Budweiser complained that their $75 million investment was shut down. No big deal for those particular authorities who have a high moral value, who uphold those moral values and demonstrate their control and they're not influenced by others. Well, that becomes an attractive force for some. You could see the corruption of moral values heading to destruction, so they come in with a kind of collective moral force to hold it all together. It wouldn't be surprising if they had a kind of moral influence down the road. But more particularly, our text emphasizes here, not only these ten kings ruling, but one's going to rise up. But who is this one king? Who is this one that comes up? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to subdue three kings. He's going to target three, and he's going to go against them, and he's going to overthrow them. He's going to uproot them and toss them out. And then he's not going to stop there. He's going to go on, verse 25, and he will speak out against the Most High and he will wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. He's going to be given a three and a half year period of rule. And he is going to be able to change calendar systems. And he is going to target the Most High God. Again, this wouldn't be surprising if it was an Islamic Antichrist because the Islamic Antichrist is going to change the calendar away from Christ being the head to Muhammad being the head. So the calendar is now around Muhammad and his arrival and Muhammad's life, not Jesus Christ and his arrival. They're going to change the prophet from Jesus to the Muhammad 
This final king, this final ruler who's going to go to war is gone by many names in the scriptures. He is described here in Daniel chapter 7 as the little horn. In chapter 8, he is described as a king. In chapter 9, he is the one who makes a covenant with God's people. He is also, in chapter 9, verse 27, the one who breaks that covenant. He is described as the one who makes desolate, chapter 9, verse 27. He is the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians says. He is also the Antichrist, John says. That's the same person. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, this one who is the little horn. He is this final ruler who is going to, as verse 25 indicates, Focus against God, speak boasts against God, and he's going to war against God, making alterations in times and in law. Wouldn't be surprising again if he sets up a whole new law, a whole new rule overall. He sets up again a whole new world order to write God out of the equation. And he's going to give it, be given this authority, as it says, for time, times, and half a time. For three and a half years, he's going to have this rule. Until, and this is the final question answered, until the court, verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. There's going to be a period of time that finally, when enough is enough, God's court will sit for judgment. The, final, the third question then, what is the final result? Well, the final result is going to be the coming of God's eternal kingdom. It's going to be annihilation of this final king. There's going to be an end of his rule, the end of his boasts, the end of his dominion, the end of his dominance. It's going to all come to an end when God has had enough. When the, when the courts of heaven have determined that this is sufficient, we've gone far enough, it is over. We're going to see in chapter 9 what the reason is, why it's over. This is the end of the transgression, the end of rebellion. It's the proof that God's people have repented and turned to him. When that happens, then God is going to come in and bring vindication. But we'll see that in chapter 9. What we see right here is, in this case, this one whose final rule, his kingdom is taken away. His kingdom is taken away and God's kingdom is established and he says in verse seven, the descript, 27, the description of it, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Meaning all world order, all authorities, all dominion set up are going to be given over to God's people and to God's kingdom. They're going to have the final authority. To his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion will serve and obey him. I love this. So even as it's indicating to us, so while this authority may arise, while this authority may have a rule for a period of time, or he may demonstrate great boasts, great rebellion, great opposition, while he may demonstrate great authority for a period of time, it will come to an end. It's not going to be permanent. 
at all. And God is the one who is directing it all, and he will accomplish his purposes by bringing an end to it. So here's the point. As we look through all this, it could happen now. Details aren't far off. Events are in place, and certainly the pieces are there. It could happen now. It could happen 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. We don't know. What we do know is this. There will be one worldwide order. And when you see a worldwide authority where all nations are under subjection to this one authority, you're getting quite close. And when you see ten kings ruling in this worldwide authority, you're getting close. And certainly, when you start to see one rise up and one start to war against those ten kings, well, now you're in it in those final days. But ultimately know this, that when that time comes and when we're in the middle of all these events, when all this is happening, it is for a period of time, it is limited in the amount of time, and there is an objective for the end. It is for the establishing of God's eternal kingdom, which will reign forever, and all authorities will be brought in under it. When we come back next week or next time, next year actually in this particular case, We'll see chapter 8 and see more details around this particular great vision. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths. And and we rejoice knowing that you're directing and orchestrating all these things. And just like every generation, we recognize that today is nearer than the day before. And yet we also recognize many more details need to take place. And just as we noticed a couple years ago how events can move very quickly, rapidly start to fulfill, or we can see your great patience as you wait for generation or another generation. So whatever it is, Father, your purpose and your plans, may our hearts be humbled, dedicated to you, resting in the truth so that we're not deceived and misled by the Antichrist and by his world system that we would grow with a kind of strength to know the truth. Certainly, Father, that we would lay down the foundation to minister to those saints who are going to go through that period of time. May we lay out the truth, ministering your word, so that your people would be prepared. And we are, again, thankful for your message as you lay this out, because it reminds us that you're in control, that you're accomplishing your good purposes And that we do not need to fear or fret what is unfolding because you're the God who has all things in your hand. And when your courts sit and when your authority is exercised, there are none who can oppose it, whether in the heavens or on earth. And in that, our hearts are comforted because you have called us your people, because we draw near to you, and we know you preserve and protect yours. Thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.